You can please take a seat, won't you? Lovely to be with you. Bit of a quiz to start with. What do these three people all have in common? What do they all have in common? Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, and Gareth Southgate. Uh, answer, well, my answer, you may develop others over the time, is that they all find themselves with slightly unexpected leadership responsibilities. Uh, few would have expected 12 months ago that Theresa May would be Prime Minister. Even fewer would have expected Jeremy Corbyn to win not one, but two Labour leadership elections. And Gareth Southgate, as England manager, I think even he's surprised he's there. And so is his mum too. But as people as with positions of unexpected responsibility, if you like, all eyes are on them and the decisions that they have made and will take and the way that they will lead in the time to come. So, for example, we saw this week, what did Theresa May's conference speech re- reveal about her vision and her character? What has Jeremy Corbyn's uh, new shadow cabinet suggested about his desire to bring his party together? And what on earth was Gareth Southgate doing uh, with England last night as we only managed to defeat, uh, win against Malta 2-0? All eyes are on someone in a position of new responsibility. And the focus is on them and saying, what will they do with their leadership? What will they do with their power? And what will their words and actions say about their character? Well, that's the situation which, if you like, Joseph found himself in, in the story that Debbie read for us uh, just now. He's a man with a new leadership responsibility, and all eyes are on him. What's he going to do with it? Just a reminder that we're following the story of Joseph. We're tracking the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis uh, for this term. And uh, we're doing it, by the way, not because just it's a good story, although it is. We're doing it because it's part of God's word, the Bible. And so we can be expectant and confident that God will speak to us through this story by the Holy Spirit, giving us both lessons in faith and also pointing us to the heart of the bigger story of God, which finds its focus in Jesus Christ. So should we just recap where we've got to so far? So Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, um, but he was his father's favourite, causing jealousy in Joseph's brothers, which was only exacerbated by Joseph telling his brothers of certain dreams which had them bowing down to him. Uh, And they're tired of his boasting. They plot to get rid of him and eventually sell him into slavery. Uh, Joseph ends up in Egypt. He does quite well as a servant of Potiphar, an official. Uh, But he's then unjustly accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. Uh, And there, Joseph cares for some of the prisoners and he interprets some of their dreams. But as the years still go on, Joseph is still in jail. Only then comes Joseph's big break that we heard of today. And as we explore this amazing episode in Joseph's life, we're going to see how Joseph responds to this new situation and this crisis that lies before Egypt. I think we'll see Joseph's character and his values challenging us. I think we'll see his plan for Egypt speaking into our stewardship of creation on this Creation Care Sunday. And I think we'll see the place that he attains reflecting in a new way on the path taken by Jesus Christ.
So perhaps you'd have your Bibles open with me. Uh, We're at page uh, 45, Genesis chapter 41. There are Bibles just in the seats in front of you. There is a uh, suitably harvesty coloured batting order that shows where we're going. Those three things, Joseph's character, Joseph's plan, and Joseph's place. Uh, Genesis chapter 41. So first of all, Joseph's character, verses 1 to 32. Why don't we just imagine our way to the scene at the beginning of this story? So two years have passed since Joseph interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream and asked that influential man specifically to mention him to Pharaoh when he got out. But nothing has happened. The cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, so Joseph is still in prison, unjustly incarcerated, and utterly forgotten. He's now 30, so 13 years have passed since he first had those dreams of power and influence. And now they just look further away than ever. But then comes his big break. Because Pharaoh himself has two disturbing uh, dreams of cows and corn there in uh, verses 1 to 7. And none of the people who are meant to be able to interpret these dreams, the magicians and the wise men of verse 8, are actually able to do so. And in a culture where dreams were incredibly significant, that was a huge problem. Then the cupbearer remembers his experience of Joseph, and so Joseph is sent for by Pharaoh. Just imagine the scene as Joseph was brought out. I love that bit where he, was, uh, he had to shave his beard off and change clothes. Of course he did. He was about to appear before Pharaoh, and he's been languishing in this dungeon. Not a very nice chapter, no. I wonder what Joseph was thinking about as he made his way from the dungeon to the palace. We'd understand it, wouldn't we, if Joseph was thinking this was his big chance. You know, play his card right and he could get out of jail. He could impress the Pharaoh, and he could be set up for life. We're not told Joseph's innermost thoughts, but we are told what he says. And it's those words in verse 16 that suggest, I think, something remarkable about Joseph's character. I want us to notice two things. First of all, I want us to notice Joseph's humility. Look with me at verse 16. Uh, Pharaoh's given him a bit of a ramp up, hasn't he? I've heard that in verse 15, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph says, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. Amidst a court where people wanted to show how capable they were, Joseph's first words are one of humility. I can't do it. What courage that took. What led Joseph to such a statement, after such a build-up. That takes us to the second thing that I want us to notice about Joseph's words, which is his concern to glorify God. Look how verse 16 continues. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I can't, but God will. And then as he continues to talk to Pharaoh and explains the dream, four times he mentions God, that is God who's the one who will give the interpretation and will do as he says. As if Joseph wants Pharaoh not to forget that this is God's work, not Joseph's. This is extraordinary behaviour when you actually put yourself in those scenes. Here is Joseph's chance to shine. And he doesn't take it. 
Here is an opportunity to put himself above the magicians and the wise men. And he says he can't do it. But his God can. His concern for humility and his concern for God's glory is utterly remarkable. Just think about how that might play out today, shall we, in our world? We live in a culture where people are encouraged to say, I've done that. This is what I've achieved. Social media, doesn't it, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or something like that, feeds a tendency to say, look at what I've done. The holiday I've afforded, the job I've got, the car I've bought, the results I've achieved, the body I've honed, I've done this. In that world that we live in, all of us, what would it look like to demonstrate some of the humility and concern for God's glory that Joseph showed? I remember a friend of mine at university who, at the, I remember being really struck by this, at the top of his essay plan, when he was planning his essays, he used to write three initials, SDG. That stands for Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. He used to write it, SDG. SDG. It was his reminder to himself that it was God who gave him the ability to write essays, and it was God who was going to get the glory. I was looking at a website this week of, of both famous and non-famous people who've come to Christ. Some of them very successful in their business and sports careers. Um, some of them not so famous. But the title of the website is fascinating. It's called I Am Second. I Am Second. That's effectively what Joseph was doing that day. He was saying to Pharaoh, I'm second, and God is supreme. I, I wonder what that would look like for you and me, by the way. Uh, humility is one of those things that's really hard to talk about, isn't it? It reminds me of that great book title, Humility and How I Achieved It. Um, <laughs> Or the ten most humble people in the world and how I taught the other nine. You know, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work. I, I, think, I, think, I think the answer, though, is to make sure that like Joseph, we attribute thanks and praise to God for what he's enabled us to do. That we deliberately attribute thanks and praise to God for what he's enabled us to do, just like Joseph did. That's something that might feel forced at first, but it really changes our heart. If we discipline ourselves to say, I thank God for this, or I'm grateful that God has enabled me to do this, I think that changes our heart. And here's the real challenge. You see, Joseph didn't do this in church. He did this in the court in front of people who didn't believe in his God. That leaves me to ask a slightly tough question of ourselves. I wonder if tomorrow morning in the workplace or in the community, we might stay, instead of saying, I had a fantastic weekend, I thank God for a great weekend. I wonder if we're prepared to say, I'm really, I had a fantastic holiday, saying, I thank God for a great holiday. Because it's him who gave it to us, just like he enabled Joseph to interpret the dream. I wonder, perhaps next time we post a photo on Facebook or Twitter, we actually give thanks to the God who enabled us to do what we're thanking him for. Would that be perhaps following Joseph's example, his humility, and seeking God's glory than his own? Let's pick up the story under the title, Joseph's Plan, 
verses 33 to 36. Because what happens is that Joseph, as he promises, interprets Pharaoh's dream because God enables him to do it. And Joseph foretells seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. But he actually goes further than he's asked to do, because as well as kind of diagnosing the problem, like any good doctor, he actually proposes a a solution to it as well. He outlines a plan to Pharaoh to deal with the next 14 years of abundance and famine. And that that, 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 uh, plan is there in verses 33 to 36. A few things to notice about this plan. First of all, it's state-sponsored. This is a plan to be owned and approved by Pharaoh. He's to do the appointing and the commissioning. It's not private enterprise. Secondly, this is a national plan. It's not just for the city of Pharaoh and his court. It's for the whole country. Thirdly, it's to be regionally administered. There are these commissioners to be uh, in a number of different dispersed cities so that grain is to be kept for the years of hardship all over the country. And fourthly, and most significantly... This is a plan for all. This is not a plan for the wealthy elite, but for all the people who will live in the land, the poor and the rich alike. And this, I want to suggest, is really important. Because the reality is that the person who is going to be most impacted by this famine is not Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh and his court will have enough money to buy grain, however expensive it gets, and however far it comes from. No, no, the people who will be soonest and most affected by the famine will be the poor. They do not have the resources and reserves to draw on. They will run out of grain first. The people who Joseph's plan will help most are those who have least. I want to suggest, therefore, this is stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor. This is stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor. And in case we think this is just a kind of one-off example in the Old Testament, it's not. It's the first of many. That The laws around harvesting that were given to Moses are such as to allow the poor to glean from the edges of the fields where there has been an abundant harvest so that they may have enough to eat. Uh, The the prophets in the Old Testament say it's in a concern for the poor and their welfare, among other things, that the leaders will be judged. You see, in outlining a stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor, Joseph is living out a key aspect of faithful living that will always be true for God's people. And in case you kind of say, well, what's, does that really true? Let me give you another example of, of kind of a counterexample. Do you remember, you might know the story in the New Testament of a man who had an abundant harvest. He was a rich farmer, and the fields kept producing more and more. And do you remember what he did? It's a parable that Jesus told. He built bigger and bigger barns. That was stewardship of abundance. But it wasn't for the poor. It was for himself. It was bigger barns for himself And that night, he received judgment from God as a result. So even in that example, we see that that, he did not receive commendation from God. For his stewardship of abundance was for himself. The biblical pattern is stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor. I I want to suggest that faithful stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor is a key message for us to hear this Creation Care Sunday. Why? Why? 
Well, first of all, we live in a world where famine is not seven years in the future, but actually in the present. Just three stories this week. North Korea, where the World Food Programme ensures that people in the country there do not starve. In Yemen, where the famine due to civil war is getting worse by the day, and Christian Giramurthy gave a harrowing report on Channel 4 News. And in northern Nigeria, where 250,000 children are severely malnourished, and millions are more thought to be starving in refugee camps that are too dangerous for aid agencies to reach. The UN says that Nigeria is on the brink of a famine, and I quote, unlike we have ever seen anywhere. We need to pray for and support those who are coming up with plans like Joseph to ensure that the poor get the food they need. As a church, we support Tear Fund, a Christian development agency that does great work in some of these most challenging areas. And in our collection today for the Garden Root Children's Trust, we can ensure that through EPAP, the children in the southern part of Africa get the food they need to learn and grow. That's why it matters. But secondly, we need to think about stewardship of abundance for the sake of the poor because we need to recognize that we live in an area of abundance and we need to be faithful stewards of that. You see, we can't change the situation in Nigeria directly. But we can be, as followers in the steps of Joseph, faithful stewards of abundance, our abundance, our abundance in a world of famine. Indeed, not only can we be stewards of abundance, we need to be faithful stewards of the abundance that we have, just like Joseph was. Now, what does that look, look like? I haven't got all the answers, but let me tell you the questions I think we should be working through. We live in a country which throws away more food than any other country in Europe. Seven million tons of food is thrown away each year in the UK, over half of which is still edible. What does it mean to be faithful stewards of abundance like Joseph was? Does it affect how much I put in the fridge in the first place? Does it affect what I eat and what I put in the bin? It's not just about food. We live in a country where energy is a lot cheaper than it was a few years ago. And it's certainly not rationed in any way. It seems they're in abundance. What does it mean for me, for us, to be faithful stewards of the abundance of the energy that we have? Does Joseph's example affect what I put my heating thermostat on? Does it affect whether I walk or cycle or drive? Does it affect the lights I have on? And it touches on other resources as well. We live in a corner of the UK with significantly higher incomes than elsewhere in the country. Now, we may not feel any abundance of wealth because we always compare ourselves to richer people than us. That's the way that we work. But, but the cars in the car park suggest there's some spare money around. What does it mean to be faithful stewards of an abundance of money? Does it affect what I do with my money so that I don't spend up to my possible limit, but I make space so I can give to others? 
I think Joseph's example calls us to a stewardship of abundance that is countercultural and costly, but I don't think we're living out our responsibility as stewards of God's creation unless we take that seriously, that we recognize that we are in the place of abundance and that we need to be as faithful stewards as Joseph was. You may want to discuss that over coffee or have a look at some of the resources at the back of church uh, uh, as you go through to coffee later on. Let's just get back to Joseph's story because his plan for the stewardship of abundance, you see, is not just a nice idea. It's not kind of a bit of a think tank proposal. It actually leads somewhere. And for Joseph, it leads him to being appointed number two to Pharaoh with responsibility, actually, for implementing this plan. There's a bit of a gulp moment where he said, this is a great plan, and somebody says, brilliant, you do it. Okay, let's go for it. So Joseph kind of is in this situation of having to sort of implement his plan. He, he goes um, into this kind of exalted position in the court where everyone has to submit to his orders. Just imagine that. And in the next few weeks, we're going to see how Joseph executes this plan and how wonderfully it brings Joseph and his family back together. But for today, I just want us to reflect on this one moment in Joseph's life and explore how it kind of points forward to the one who is at the heart of God's story, that is Jesus Christ. Because as I was thinking about Joseph this week, it just struck me there were some similarities between Joseph and Jesus, but also a key difference as well. First of all, the similarities. I think it's there in this this, this kind of humility and concern for God's glory. It seems to me Jesus is, is a man who's after Joseph's heart, his humility, his concern for the Father's glory. If you think about it, his birth in a stable, his arrival in Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus was a man who did not seek the path of glory, but was concerned that the praise went to the one who sent him. If you think of that prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's kind of saying I'm second. But there's an important difference between Joseph and Jesus as well, at least at this point. You see, when, you see while Joseph went from the dungeon to the palace, Jesus went from the palace to the dungeon. While Joseph went from the dungeon to the palace, Jesus went from the palace to the dungeon. I want to tell you about a place that Annabelle and I visited with the boys uh, earlier this year when we went to the Holy Land. Just outside the old city of Jerusalem, but still on the hill on which Jerusalem is built, is a, is a church called St. Peter of Galicantu. It's a church built on many different levels over the remains, the archaeological remains of a large first century house which was excavated in the 19th century as they tended to do when they found a place of significance they built a church on top of it Um, uh, 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 the church has a number of different levels, chapels but at the very bottom level is a dungeon that goes back to the first century in fact you can just see in the rock the holes through which the ropes which held the prisoners would have been passed. that You can put your finger even through today. And it's thought that this was Caiaphas' house and that this was the place where Jesus spent the night 
after he'd been arrested and before he was crucified. Now, whether it is or it isn't, it's a powerful reminder that either there or within a hundred meters of there, Jesus was kept that night, having been arrested in Gethsemane, about to face a show trial and death. In that dungeon, he'd come from a heavenly court, but he ended up in prison. And yet, and yet that was not a mistake. You see, Jesus was not in the dungeon because someone had forgotten about him. He was there because of a plan, a plan more wonderful than Joseph's, for this was God's plan, not for one country of Egypt, but actually for the whole world, a plan to bring people back to the one who had made them and to the one who wanted to give them what? Abundance. That's God's plan, you see to give his people abundance, abundance of life now, a life lived in the relationship with the one who made us, an abundance of life beyond the grave that is the common destiny of us all. You see, Joseph's plan was to keep people alive. God's plan in Jesus was to give people a new kind of life a life which would never end, a life which was the fullness of what life is designed to be, a life where we know that we are loved, forgiven, transformed, and held. Jesus went to the dungeon, and from the dungeon to the cross, because God wants to give us abundant life. The question is, will we recognize and receive that abundant life? A life that is richer than the finest feast. A life that is more energizing than the best power. And a life that is richer than the biggest salary. That's the abundant life that Jesus went to the dungeon to give you and me. Joseph was a man of great character whose heart was to serve God and to serve others. His plan for abundance and stewardship of abundance and famine was a a great sign of that. And the position he reached serves us as a way of contrast for the position which Jesus went to so that we might experience abundant life. So let me end with three questions for us to ask ourselves as we reflect on Joseph's story. First of all, will we follow Joseph's example in humility and seeking God's glory before our own? Secondly, will we steward our resources to show that we care for a world in need, our abundant resources, as Joseph did? And thirdly, will we recognize the place that Jesus went to So we and all who turn to Christ may have that life in abundance.